0: Hello and welcome to the next installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. This episode, Celebrating Recent Work by Arden Hegley, is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on February 15th, 2022, to discuss Hegley's recently published book, Romantic Autopsy, Literary Form, and Medical Reading. Arden Hegley is a lecturer in the discipline of English and Comparative Literature and an affiliated faculty member with Medical Humanities through the Institute of Comparative Literature and Society. She is also an affiliated faculty member with Medical Humanities and Ethics through Columbia University Medical Center. She is interested in the intersection of medical knowledge with formalist and historicist literary approaches, Hegley began this book as her dissertation at Columbia, which she completed in 2016. During a postdoctoral fellowship at the Society of Fellows Heyman Center for the Humanities, she completely rethought elements of the book to orient it within the field of medical humanities. Now, before we turn to Arden Hegley, you, like me, might be curious to know what exactly is meant by medical humanities. Here is a clear and concise explanation by panelist and frequent collaborator of Hegley's Rishi Goyal, Director of the Medicine, Literature, and Society major at the Institute of Comparative Literature and Society and Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Columbia University Medical Center, Department of Emergency Medicine. Let's listen. When I
1: think about it, you know, the medical and health humanities is sort of a kind of a heterogeneous group of methods and ideas that engage the humanities in the social science disciplines, such as history, literature, anthropology, sociology alongside scientific disciplines like biology, genetics, neuroscience, and biomedical engineering. These diverse fields are marshaled to emphasize a set of common principles that extend across disciplines, including the acknowledgement of the vulnerability of human bodies and adoption of anti-essentialist approaches to biology, a sensitivity to discursive, rhetorical, and historical approaches that reflect how ideas about the body and health come to circulate and gain cultural traction. just a few words about definitions or taxonomies. So medical humanities, what's that? It's the more established, I think, of the two fields. It's an interdisciplinary field that explores contexts, experiences, and critical and conceptual issues in medicine and healthcare while supporting professional identity formation. Scholarship in the medical humanities is concerned with surveying and critiquing the disciplinary norms of the medical and healthcare context while also training physicians and other healthcare professionals in approaches related to and or derived from the humanities. For instance, narrative medicine, as we have Rita here, and bioethics. In its focus on practical training, medical humanities has tended to emphasize educating what one scholar terms us in the God terms, empathy, listening, moral imagination, and self-reflection. There's been a more recent term to what we might call the critical medical humanities, which adopts a kind of decentering attitude as it applies a critical perspective to the implicit assumptions that structure the medical field. And now for health humanities, which is kind of its related term, and maybe a, more, a newer term, but one that's, I think, a little more difficult to define. It sort of came about in response to perceived limitations in medical humanities, which has a kind of narrow focus maybe on disease, as opposed to the kind of more expansive concept of health. Health humanities scholars suggest that a health humanities approach looks both at and beyond medicine to critique its influence over cultural norms. This is more often situated in humanities departments than in clinical spaces and it introduces the creative arts as well as traditional analytic disciplines. Health humanities adopts the characteristic attitude and study of the humanities, inclusivity, diversity, intersectionality, to an applied critique of the frameworks and institutions that govern healthcare and its effects on culture. I think it's more concerned with broader contexts, prioritizes a view beyond the medical humanities, sometimes narrow frame, Health Humanities addresses a broad array of objects of study, such as disability, bias, structural inequality, aging, grief, suffering, and death. In addition to this diversity in its objects of study, Health Humanities draws on more of a capacious set of methodologic tools adapted from different uh, humanities disciplines. Close reading, as we see in this text, historiography, and qualitative assessment to offer critical commentary on the influence of medicine and healthcare on human experience. Now, which brings me to kind of what we're doing today. So what makes Hagley's work so vital and valuable is that it approaches this disciplinary question from both the perspectives of the medical and the health humanities. Romantic autopsy is beautifully written and incisively argued with astute readings of classic poems and novels like Tintern Abbey and Frankenstein. And if that's all it was, that would be enough to enshrine its status as a valued addition to our academic practice. But the book does a number of really important things in terms of expanding and developing the nascent fields of medical and health humanities. By taking seriously the protocols of romantic literary production and readership, and the protocols of romantic medicine, and then highlighting their cultural exchange, Hegley teaches us how to read Adonais and In Memoriam better, but also how to better understand the pedagogic and therapeutic purpose of the case history in the postmortem but Hegley doesn't stop there. She makes a further leap, which is crucial to the ethical impulse underlying the medical and health humanities. Symptomatic reading in Hegley's hands and words is an ethical reading practice that informs the care a physician or healthcare worker should take when treating a person and a body. The model of close and careful reading that pays deep attention to syntax, metaphor, and other tropes is the kind of gaze that romantic physicians brought to bodies specifically because of the ways they learned how to read. And this literary historical study revivifies the practice of symptomatic reading in contemporary English departments, linking it to healing practices while simultaneously empowering healthcare workers who care for all kinds of abjected bodies and peoples to embrace protocols of care embedded in close reading practices.
0: Now, Let's turn to Arden Hegley for an introduction to her book. Here, Hegley will also explain what exactly is meant by romantic in this context, that is the period of time between more or less 1750 and 1850. Hegley also makes a point of arguing that romantic literature isn't just about medicine, but rather engages perspectives she calls quote-unquote diagnostic. Here is Arden Hegley introducing and reading from her new book.
2: Um, Before we hear your thoughts on the book, I wanted to begin with a brief account of what this book is and what it does. In our present time, we don't expect a literary dissection to be more than a metaphor for a particularly trenchant critique, nor do we expect a symptomatic reading to refer to actual symptoms, but it was not always so. Romantic autopsy considers a moment at the turn of the 19th century when British literature and medicine seemed embattled in rivalry to find the two cultures working in unexpected collaboration. My book's main contribution is to reveal how literature and medicine developed interpretive analogies that bridge the fields conceptually. Writers and readers saw fiction and poetry as organic forms and doctors thought of anatomical features as texts that could be read. Together, romantic writers, readers, and doctors developed what I call protocols of diagnosis practices for analytical interpretation that could be used both to diagnose disease in the context of medicine and to understand fiction and poetry in the context of critical reading. In short, Romantic Autopsy makes the case for an interpretive relationship between medical texts and the poetry, prose, and criticism of British Romanticism, with implications for how we continue to read symptomatically in the present day. More on this in a minute. Romantic Autopsy begins by considering the structures of thought that literature and medicine shared during the Romantic century, the era roughly between 1750 to 1850, that is bookended in English literature by Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, a novel that aspires to open and embalm its heroine, and Albert Tennyson's In Memoriam, an elegy shaped by the rhetoric of the autopsy report. Many essential works of British literature from this period, the lyric poetry of Wordsworth, Keats, and Shelley, the novels of Mary Wollstonecraft, Mary Shelley, and Jane Austen might seem at first to have little to do with medicine. And yet we can place vital works of poetry and prose from Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey and Shelley's Adenaeus to The Wrongs of Woman, Frankenstein and Pride and Prejudice in the context of the emergent medical disciplines of the period. In fact, I argue romantic literature is not just about medicine or affected by medical motifs. More than this, the literature encourages a perspective that we might call diagnostic. Romantic readers are prompted by the texts themselves to dissect poems. To see literary works as organic forms and languages living, to diagnose madness from speech, to cure physical symptoms by reading, and ultimately to derive literary meaning by using the hermeneutics of medicine, an admired but increasingly rival field. During Romanticism, the making of medicine and literature into distinct fields of inquiry, and eventually into academic disciplines, also initiated an exchange across those fields that generated mutually productive terms and ideas. So just in point of example of such a cultural crossover, I will read to you a little bit from the book itself so you can get a flavor of the writing. This is from the introduction. To illustrate the fluidity of the mutual exchange between literature and medicine, let me single out two terms, autopsy and verve that traveled in opposite directions between the fields at the turn of the 19th century. Reflecting advances in anatomy and pathology during and after the French Revolution, the term autopsy derived from the ancient Greek autopsia (seeing with one's own eyes, migrated from medicine to become an established technique of poetic criticism. First used in 1805 with respect to the medical postmortem, cadaverous autopsia, the term was being used figuratively by 1835 to mean the examination of a subject or work moral autopsia. As the 19th century progressed, this figurative sense became even more pronounced in his reference to literary production and criticism. By 1870, Mary Elizabeth Braddon was describing an autopsy of a fine lady's poem. But this cross-cultural influence also ran in the other direction from literature into medicine. Writerly verve, an indicator of personal style in the Enlightenment Art of Letters, had by the turn of the 19th century taken on new significance in emergent theories of vitalism, carrying resonances such as energy, vivacity, or go that helped to explain biological animation. In Hygieia, written in 1803, the scientist and physician Thomas Beddows wrote about the actions of the internal organs that many such processes are carried on with as high a verve or as true fervor as ever accompanied poetic fiction. In their illustrations of two opposite currents in medical literary discourse, autopsy and verve and their underlying concepts of formal organization mark a chiastic interchange between the science of letters and the medical arts. The autopsy, bolstered by new discoveries in the field of clinical pathology, became an experimental practice, not only for understanding the human body, but also for opening up the formal workings of the literary text. The newly medicalized concept of literary verve, meanwhile, offered a model of the text as a living organism that radiated its energy outward for critical observation. The cross movement of autopsy and verve offers a salient example of how tropes of organicism, disease and examination in romantic literature can metonymically reveal the more abstract shared ontology that bridged literary and medical cultures. I'll just stop there. Let me tell you a little bit about the evidence for that shared ontology that I examined in, in the chapters of the book. Romantic autopsy shows the variety of medical genres a literary writer might have encountered in their everyday reading, such as physicians' accounts of curious cases, histories of psychiatric patients, and journalistic autopsy reports. Such works in turn inform some of the most familiar novels and poems from the era. In The Prelude and Tintern Abbey, for instance, Wordsworth explores the growth of the poet's mind through a method of self-reading that mimics the anatomical dissections he witnessed in revolutionary France. The great elegies, Percy Shelley's Adonais and Alfred Tennyson's In Memoriam, evoke the body through an anatomical register that had been modeled in the widely available post-mortem reports of Princess Charlotte, Napoleon, and Lord Byron. Jane Austen's use of free and direct discourse in Pride and Prejudice has an important precedent in psychiatric case reports written by the director of Bedlam and in Mary Wollstonecraft's novel writing on female insanity. With Frankenstein, Mary Shelley participates in a long tradition of the medical case history as an inherently unreliable genre that extends from Matthew Bailey's 1788 account of situs verses, which is the reversal of the body's organs, to Sigmund Freud's studies on hysteria. In all these contexts, romantic autopsy shows how reading romantic literature as a medically-informed practice reveals a rich substrate of interpretive conventions that the fields share. The book also raises several questions about the relations between literature and medicine and the enduring bonds that the fields continue to share. Most importantly, what impact do protocols and diagnosis have now on the practice of critical reading? In the coda, I discuss the persistence of romantic diagnostics in the present day in theoretical debates about how we read symptomatically Rather than taking aim at symptomatic reading as a throwback to Marxist, Freudian, or structuralist and post-structuralist critiques, my book instead finds new potential for the strategy by reinterpreting it in light of its historical engagement with medicine. The function and value of symptomatic reading might be rehabilitated, I suggest, through a reconsideration that sees it as a rich example of how literary scholarship has historically drawn on and informed its rival cultures. Instead of warning against symptomatic reading, my book is an invitation to revive it. Symptomatic reading has the potential to bridge the fields anew through a cross-disciplinary exegesis that reflects evolving ethical priorities in both modern medical practice and contemporary literary study. Reviving symptomatic reading might afford us a diagnostic protocol of our own. So to sum up, Romantic Autopsy provides an original account of the life and afterlife of Romantic era medicine and literature while offering a new vision of an interchange that underlies our modern day approaches to the interpretation of literary texts.
0: Next, we'll hear from Deidre Lynch, the Ernst Bernbaum Professor of English Literature at Harvard University, who, as it turns out, also taught Arden Hegley during her time as an undergraduate. Here, Deidre makes a case to Arden for a reading of her favorite text, the 1872 Victorian work, Sheridan News In a Glass Darkly. She then points to the alternative genealogy Hegley offers for the practice of literary criticism. Take a listen.
3: But I would love to know what Arden might make of a Victorian work. Sheridan Le News' In a Glass Darkly, published 1872. Uh, a great favorite of my own, a set of linked stories, which purport to be selected from the cases collected by a certain Dr. Martin Heselius. One of those cases is that of Carmella the lesbian vampire whose story was adapted for film by Carl Dreyer in 1932. What's especially intriguing, given Arden's interest in the role that a paratextual frame narrative plays in Mary Shelley's novel, is that Martin Heselius is, in Le Fanu's book, doubled by another nameless figure who appears only in the prologue, Heselius' secretary and then later his executor. Although educated in surgery, this figure has never actually practiced. He was forced to secede from the calling that engrossed his patron, Heselius. When in the wake of a slip of his own dissecting knife, he suffered a terrible accident and subsequently had two fingers amputated. Le Fanu gives us here as a figure of the authorial hand, a self-dissecting hand. The medical history of our frame narrator, who, as I said, introduces a second frame narrator, Heselius himself also seems to capture with remarkable aptness the narrowing of the gulf between the patient's authority and the physician's authority that Arden references as she concludes her final chapter. The doctor, as she insists in that chapter, is not in the literature of this era a figure who can stand apart from the symptom, which might be why medical training might include not just Frankenstein, but In a Glass Darkly as well. Now, it might be a bit self-indulgent of me to use this occasion to call for attention to Le Fanu as a late-breaking contributor to the tradition that Arden reconstructs. But really, Arden, I want you to write about this book. Um, And this is recorded, right? So now my wish is on record. I'm going to continue just a little longer with the self-indulgence to conclude. One of the real gifts of Arden's book overall is the alternative genealogy for the practice of literary criticism that it offers. As you just heard, Arden does not make Freud, Nietzsche, and Marx the origin of modern hermeneutics. She sees symptomatic reading instead as something we inherit from romantic forebears and something shaped by their engagement. With romantic era medicine. I'll just say this in concluding. One of the burdens that one carries as a critic of romanticism is that the poets in particular so often appear to see you coming and so often appear to not want you to arrive years before you encounter their pages They're already lamenting critical readers whose profession has them, as words were said, murdering to dissect. And then there is Keats, a figure who, if Shelley and Byron are to be believed, was snuffed out by an article who was, in Arden's witty phrase, murdered to dissect. And then there is Coleridge, too, who has a poem in the keepsake of 1829 titled, to a critic who quoted an isolate passage and then declared it unintelligible. Most candid critic, what if I, by way of joke, pluck out your eye and holding up the fragment cry, ha ha, that men such fools should be, behold this shapeless mass. And he who owned it dreamt that it could see the joke were mighty analytic. But should you like it, candid critic? I, I would love to see Arden discuss this poem too. But in her book, Arden isn't reminding us of the discursive context for Coleridge's anti-critical, anti-analytic complaint, simply because she's setting up a post-mortem. Romantic autopsy isn't a post-mortem as we normally understand it because Arden doesn't declare critical reading dead and done, nor does she warn us that it should be dead and gone. Her motives in developing a theory of the protocols of diagnosis are quite different from this. Unlike many such enterprises, Arden's genealogical study means to revive its object. Because of its prehistory and medical literary exchange, she says, symptomatic reading can be used to bridge the fields anew. Because of its ancestry, the practice of symptomatic reading has therapeutic as well as destructive possibilities. I'm very much looking forward to seeing how our field takes these lessons to heart. And I wanna thank Arden for teaching us these lessons and many others beside.
0: Now, let's turn to Rachel Adams, Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She specializes in 20th and 21st century literatures of the United States and the Americas, disability studies and health humanities, media studies, theories of race, gender, and sexuality, and food studies. Here, Rachel focuses on Arden's reading of Pride and Prejudice in one of the chapters in Romantic Autopsy to ask Arden what she thinks the stakes in doing these kinds of symptomatic readings are.
4: In about two weeks, I'll be teaching Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, a novel I love but is well outside of my literary historical training in 20th century U.S. literature it also feels quite far from my cultural interests in science, medicine, and human health. These themes are clearly available in prior works, like St. Augustine's Confessions, where lust is described as a vivid embodied pathology, Michel de Montaigne's detailed account of his experiences of kidney stones and erectile dysfunction, or Miguel de Cervantes' comic treatment of bodily smells, excretions, and wounding. Then we arrive at Jane Austen, whose characters have more of the closed classical bodies that always seem to invite less conversation about what Tobin Siebers calls complex embodiment. Except when Jane catches a bad cold early in Pride and Prejudice, the novel seemed to me to have not much to say about health the history of medicine. That is until I read Arden's illuminating association of Austin's free indirect discourse with the same narrative techniques in psychiatric writing of the time. As a literary critic, I'm used to thinking of free indirect style as a means of accessing a character's interiority as the narrator temporarily zooms in to depict the world filtered through her individual thoughts and impressions. I would not have known, nor would I have thought to look without Arden's guidance toward this device as being prevalent in psychiatric accounts of mad speech at the time. When she proposes, it was a strategy for the doctor to at once represent the patient's pathological mind while also containing and distancing himself from it. I'm totally convinced when Arden then turns to Pride and Prejudice to show how Austen uses this technique to portray Lydia Bennett, the novel's wayward younger daughter, as betraying symptoms of sexual addiction. And uh, as she points out, this introduces the larger problem confronted by respectable citizens of the period, what to do with mentally ill family members, particularly when they act in ways that threaten harm to themselves or others. In Arden's reading, the united Elizabeth and Darcy ultimately assume responsibility for containing Lydia's madness and limiting its impact on others in the family. I love this reading, but I also want Arden's help in clarifying for me so I can present this to my class in two weeks. What you think is at stake when Austen provides this resolution? Is she affirming the values of her protagonists, tasking sane family members with constraining their how their relatives, ill relatives circulate in public? But I also wonder if in making Lydia's perceived immorality an illness, one that seems to have no particular treatment beyond containment, is there some effort to exonerate her and perhaps by extension to criticize those who would find her morally suspect? And given that Elizabeth had so recently shared some of Lydia's own exuberance and impulsivity, does Austen feel ambivalent about her happy ending, perceiving that something is lost when Lizzie joins Darcy in his strict and judgmental containment of wayward bodies and minds. With this local example, I'm inviting Arden to share further thoughts about what literature, energized by its association with medicine, Does in the world? She turns to this question in her conclusion, where she's perhaps, I would say, because I just love this book so much, I think she's a bit modest about what her insights have to offer. In showing the shared origins of the literary and medical diagnostic practices, she contends romantic autopsy can redeem symptomatic reading from its tarnished reputation among literary critics. But this prompts her to a new set of questions. If literary narrative can and should be read for its symptoms, where is the cure? If the purpose of medical diagnosis is healing, can the same be said about the effort to identify the etiology of literary devices and narrative forms? She concludes that identifying creative literature with medicine does not ultimately offer healing to the text, its writer, or the reader. This to my mind, is a very important corrective to the version of humanities that I often see being taken up in medical education, where running counter to the approaches of most literary critics, there is often a sense that the purpose of we read literature for healing and or to provide us with moral guidance. What then does literature do? Romantic autopsy ends by inviting literary critics to think about more generative alliances with medicine than one limited to narrow practices of healing and cure. I thought of my own work with colleagues in precision medicine, a field of treatment and research based primarily in genetics, which has little to do with symptoms. In its most ideal form, precision medicine aims to detect a body's vulnerabilities and needs in advance, tailoring the avenues to well being to a given individual's genetic makeup and environment. When I listen to researchers talk about the possible applications of precision medicine, it often feels like speculative fiction. But I also appreciate their recognition of the body's complex and porous interactions with its environment the limits of a one size fits all treatment protocol, given the particularities of individual bodies and it's more qualified understanding of health. In helping me to see this alignment, a signal accomplishment of romantic autopsy then is to recall the historical kinship of medicine and diagnostic literary reading, contributing to a more fluid, provisional and always imperfect approach to both physiological and narrative well-being.
0: An audience member present at the event asked Arden when and how she first discovered the correlation between literary and medical dissection. Here's her response.
2: Well, I think I always had an ear attuned to this. Maybe since listening to Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette, where she says, I'm not going to dissect everything today. And once you start paying attention to it, You hear the word dissection applied in a metaphorical sense all the time, all the time, all the time. And when I came to read Wordsworth, a poem called The Table's Turned, he has this very famous line, we murder to dissect. And I thought, wow, what a line. We murder to dissect. And that was used in reference to a reader who was murdering to dissect, who was destroying the literary work in order to pick it apart. That I I found such a rich and evocative phrase that that was what led me to consider, okay, is Wordsworth for science? Is he against it? What is the relationship of literature to medicine and to the sciences more broadly during this period? Is medicine a science at all in this period? So that was the poem that began
0: it all. And that's all the time we have for today, but I want to thank Arden Hegley and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was Celebrating Recent Work by Arden Hegley. The title of her newest book is Romantic Autopsy, Literary Form, and Medical Reading. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Hayman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.